0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable in PDF format, please visit garynorth.com freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North 1990. Chapter 11, Will God Disinherit Christ's Church? Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Matthew seven fifteen to 20 For many decades a series of sensational prophecies have been made in the name of biblical revelation. Few of these events have come true. The predictors have identified Antichrist after Antichrist, and each one has died. For over seventy years they have identified the Soviet Union as the prophesied aggressor from the north, yet overnight In July of 1990, they switched to Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Hal Lindsey told a reporter that Hussein is rebuilding Babylon, which Zechariah prophesied. And so it goes and has gone throughout the 20th century. These prophecies' predictions are not harmless. They embarrass the church. But my objection to them is not my concern over public relations with the secular world. My concern is ethical. I argue that the motivation of these false teachers is not merely the, their desire to sell books and become famous men after the prophesied events take place. Their goal is ethical. Their goal is to deflect Christians from the Great Commission, as defined by the Bible rather than by the Gospel tract association. They wish to substitute a very narrow plan of salvation for the Bible's comprehensive plan. Postmillennialism is basic. To this strategy of deflection. Narrowing One's Ethical Vision Marvin Rosenthal has written a book that defends what seems to be a mid-tribulational view of the rapture, although he wants to avoid the term tribulation. In the introduction to his book, he makes this statement, quote, The importance of understanding still unfulfilled prophecy for contemporary Christian living cannot be overstated, end quote. He then spends 300 pages, no subject index, describing his new interpretation of the 70th week of Daniel, etc. But there is nothing in the book that tells us what difference specifically any of this makes for contemporary Christian living. He never bothers to discuss contemporary Christian living. Prophecy books never do. Chapter 20 is titled, The Pre-Wrath Rapture, Catalyst for Holy Living. Yet there is not one word on any specifically ethical application of his thesis. He tells us only to be godly, for Jesus is coming soon. The chapter is basically a plea to the reader to accept the author's thesis. He offers us his thesis of the seven churches of the book of Revelation, more discussion of the timing of the rapture. That is all. End of chapter, end of book. He tells us, as four or more generations of dispensational preachers have assured us, that Quote, At the present moment of history, the planet Earth is in grave crisis. This celestial ball is on a collision course with its creator. Man has pushed the self-destruct button. End quote. What is the church to do? He does not say. But he assures us once again that Jesus is coming again. That is the blessed living hope. At his coming, peraza, he will raise the dead and rapture the righteous. Then he will pour out his wrath on the wicked before physically returning to the earth. Even so come Lord Jesus. Revelation 22.20. End of book. So, he says confidently, quote, the importance of understanding still unfulfilled prophecy for contemporary Christian living cannot be overstated. End quote. Then what exactly is its importance? How should we then live? The answer from the world of dispensationalism has been the same from the beginning. Quote, this world is doomed. We are running out of time. There is no earthly hope, so attend a prophecy conference soon. Quote. Ethically, dispensationalism has self-consciously an empty box. Yet it has been the dominant millennial position in modern fundamentalism, which in turn has been the dominant force in American and Western Protestant evangelicalism. It is these churches that will probably be the pioneers of any imminent revival. This thought is almost sufficient to make an amillennialist out of me. One major consolation is this. When the great revival comes, and these premillennial churches start growing, they will shift their eschatology. They have been premillennial in order to explain the church's obvious failure to evangelize the world. Pessimillennialism's two main functions are these. One... To justify failure in the past, and two, to minimize responsibility in the present. Success will transform the Church's millennial views. When they no longer see themselves as losers in history, Christians will discard their eschatologies of guaranteed defeat. But is dispensationalism really a theology of defeat? Dave Hunt has answered this better than anyone else. Yes. God's supposed disinheritance of His Church. I have said earlier that a major incentive for believing the doctrine of the rapture is that people want to get out of life alive. There is another factor, the desire to leave nothing valuable behind. This is not a normal motivation in life. It is not a biblical motivation for a good man. Quote, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, end quote Proverbs thirteen twenty two A. But this is not an acceptable goal if you reject the truth of the second half of the proverb, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. If you think God's plan for history is the opposite, that the wealth of the just is laid up for the sinner, plus pessimillennialism's thesis, then logically you would prefer to cut off the legacy of Christians to their heirs. You would much prefer to see God disinherit his church in history, an insane view Not at all, given the initial covenant-denying assumption. This is consistent pessimillennialism. Am I exaggerating? Not if Dave Hunt isn't. He writes of the psychological importance of the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture. The rapture's total cultural discontinuity is far better than death's personal discontinuity, he insists. The expectancy of being caught up at any moment into the presence of our Lord in the rapture does have some advantages over a similar expectancy through the possibility of sudden death. Quote, Number one, if we are in a right relationship with Christ, we can genuinely look forward to the rapture. Yet no one, not even Christ in the garden, looks forward to death. The joyful prospect of the rapture will attract our thoughts while the distasteful prospect of death is something we may try to forget about, thus making it less effective in our daily lives. Number two, While the rapture is similar to death in that both serve to end one's earthly life, the rapture does something else as well. It signals the climax of history and opens the curtain upon its final drama. It thus ends in a way that death does not. All human stake in continuing earthly developments, such as the lives of the children left behind, the growth of or the dispersion of the fortune accumulated, the protection of one's reputation, the success of whatever earthly causes one has espoused, and so forth. End quote. It could not be any clearer. When believed, the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture destroys all hope in Christian progress in history. It is the climax of history, Hunt insists. In fact, its more forthright defenders actually say that this is one of its great advantages for Christian living. Belief in the pre-tribulation rapture ends, quote, all human stake in continuing earthly developments, end quote. Hunt has not hesitated to tell us the psychological appeal of the rapture for the average dispensationalist. Hunt forgets that personal death ends our worrying about earthly things. There are no more tears in heaven, but this future freedom from pain and concern is not good enough to satisfy him. No, he wants more the utter destruction of every trace of the work of Christians and God's Church in history. He wants total historical discontinuity as a result of the coming cosmic discontinuity of the Rapture and the subsequent earthly horrors of the Great Tribulation. He says plainly that the Rapture signals the climax of history. The Dispensationalist equates the so-called Church Age with history. We Reconstructionists take Hunt at his word. This is how we have always understood the dispensational view of the Church. This is why we call dispensationalism, historically, pessimistic. It is pessimistic about God's Church in history. There can be no greater pessimism than this. Over and over, we Reconstructionists have said that this is what faith in the rapture produces in consistent dispensational theology. Dispensationalists have replied, when they have even bothered to reply, that we are exaggerating, that the dispensational system teaches nothing of the kind. Dave Hunt has spelled it out in no uncertain terms. We were correct. This is exactly the worldview that the dispensational system produces. It took Dave Hunt, the most widely read spokesman for the position in the 1980s, to follow the logic of dispensational theology to its inescapable conclusion. While he is not a theologian, as he freely admits when debating complex topics, His exposition of plain vanilla dispensational theology is the view that the average fundamentalist in the pew holds dear. Hunt knows what sells. He sells it. Seminary theologians can protest from now until premillennial kingdom come that Hunt is not a representative thinker. On the contrary, the publicly silent seminary theologians are the ones who are not representative. No one has ever heard of them. The man the dispensational movement's troops read and believe is Dave Hunt. The Theological Threat of Activism Why is Hunt so concerned about people's continuing faith in the rapture? Because he says, they are rapidly abandoning it. He goes so far as to call it one of the most unpopular doctrines today in stark contrast to its prominence only a few years ago. Hunt feels the theological ground shaking beneath him. He is in close contact with the fundamentalist world. While he is exaggerating the degree of abandonment, there is little doubt that dispensationalism has lost its appeal in the lives of many of its former adherents. The paperback book writers cried Antichrist too often, and this endless sensationalism produced a desensitizing effect in the victims. They are burned out. What has caused this shift in opinion? From what Hunt indicates in his essay, Christian Reconstructionism Would that it were so Hunt knows that Jerry Falwell is whistling past the graveyard by telling his followers that it is harder to find a postmillennialist now than a Wendell Wilkie button. In two instances, volumes in the biblical blueprint series have been assigned as textbooks to students at Falwell's University. It is dispensationalism, not postmillennialism that is on the wane. What would be more accurate for Hunt to say is that the 1980s produced a more activist-minded American fundamentalism. The world around the church is clearly disintegrating, and a growing minority of Christians sense that they do have some degree of responsibility to reverse this drift. This is a major break from the pre-1980 American fundamentalism, and it appalls Hunt. He blames it on the one Christian group that has systematically articulated the only theologically consistent justification for Christian social involvement. He recognizes that theology counts, even when its defenders are presently few in number. Hunt is extremely upset by Christian Reconstruction's view of historical progress, which he correctly perceives as a direct assault on traditional dispensationalism's view of history. Quote, The whole Dominion Reconstruction movement is too wedded to an ongoing earthly process stretching into the indeterminate future to be truly faithful to the totality of what Scripture says about being sufficiently disengaged from this world to leave it at a moment's notice, As is true of premillennialists generally, Hunt does understand the significance of a Christian's personal willingness, unwillingness, to disengage from this world before the time that God calls His soul home to heaven, because His work is completed, Philippians one twenty to twenty-four. Hunt understands that we are supposed to want to finish our tasks, so in order to make it easy for us to end all such concerns, he proclaims the doctrine of the rapture and the subsequent great tribulation, events that will bury all of the church's work in history. He calls this an end to history. But, unlike the amillennial view of Christ's second coming, the premillennialist says that Christ has at least a thousand years of work ahead of him, but this work will be utterly discontinuous from anything the Church achieves in history. This view is wrong. Our work does have great significance in history. We are building up God's kingdom in history, an idea that Hunt denies in his recent books. He recognizes that we Reconstructionists have a world-transforming vision, He wants to cut that vision short. Look up, he shouts. This means, stop looking forward to society here on earth through future generations. Cosmic Book Theology Comic Book Theology Like those plantation slaves in the American South back in 1850, we Christians are told to look up for our deliverance. This means that in the meantime, we should say to the humanists who dominate society, Yes, Massa. We be good, Massa. We just keep looking up, Massa. We don't cause you no problems, Massa. Just don't use that whip, Massa. And deep down inside we may think, day Jesus is going to whip you, and maybe I will too. Hunt does, quote, Our hope is not in taking over this world, but in being taken to heaven by our Lord, to be married to him in glory, and then to return with him as part of the armies of heaven to rescue Israel. Destroy his enemies, and participate in the millennial reign. Yes, it is that old Charles Atlas dynamic tension syndrome, this time for grown ups, and without any sweat. New, superhuman bodies for all the saints. Our hearts should be in perpetual wonder and joy at the prospect of being suddenly caught up to be with Christ, our bodies transformed to be like his body of glory. And more. "...and in our transformed bodies, made like his body of glory, in which we will share his resurrection of life, we will reign with him over this earth for one thousand years." The trouble is, this is a child's dream. It is the Shazam syndrome of the old Captain Marvel comic books. After saying Shazam, wimpy Billy Batson instantly becomes the invulnerable Captain Marvel. The bad guys tremble justice is meted out swiftly, today's Christians become part of the Millennial Justice League someday soon, someday soon. Meanwhile, Christians are stuck in the culturally irrelevant bog of history. History is the era of the church, of Billy Batson, but not of Captain Marvel. A comic book view of the future has been the dominant outlook of 20th century evangelicalism. It has not produced Christian social theory. Today, as Hunt recognizes, some of the troops in the pews have decided that they are too old to be reading comic books. Even some of the seminary professors who teach the future shepherds are having doubts. Time is running out for dispensationalism, one way or another. Either the rapture confirms it very soon, or else the troops will refuse to renew their subscriptions. Their leaders have cried, wolf, too often, just as boys back in 1947 shouted, shazam, too often nothing happened. Rapture fever eventually cools. The Premillennialist's Response Premillennialism does have some understanding of the resurrection and ascension. The Premillennialist expects the good times to come to earth when Christ returns bodily to overcome the weakness of the Church in history. What Premillennialism ignores is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It also denies the doctrine of God's irresistible grace. What the premillennialist ignores is the question of the two angels to the witnesses of Christ's ascension. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Acts 1, 11a. Then the witnesses returned to Jerusalem to await the coming of the Holy Spirit. But premillennialists are still standing around culturally gazing in hope at heaven. In the meantime, their pockets are being picked by the humanists. Just keep on looking up, the humanists tell them. Let us know if you see something. Dispensationalists do not see persecution as a means of advancing the church. They see it as one of Satan's means of thwarting the church. The church does not advance, in their view. The church, they insist, will fail in carrying out the Great Commission, even the narrowly defined Great Commission of modern pietism. What they pray for is the great escape, from persecution during the supposedly imminent Great Tribulation. They want to stop hearing about the need for mass evangelism today. They want to stop having to answer social questions. The way that they are able to do this in good conscience is to deny that there is sufficient time remaining for implementing any fundamental changes in either church or society. No theoretical or practical answers. In response to the challenge from Christian reconstruction, The less well-informed critics have said, These people have substituted politics for evangelism. This is a lie that cannot be supported from our writings, which is why you never see a single direct quotation from a Reconstructionist source to support this accusation. But this criticism does raise a legitimate question. Do Christian Reconstructionists believe that the positive feedback process within a culturally Christian social order can be sustained apart from continuing widespread conversions to saving faith? The answer is no. Without continuing evangelism and a manifestation of the irresistible grace of God in history, we can expect nothing better than what New England experienced, a slow erosion from Calvinism to the rule of lawyers and merchants, to Arminianism, to Unitarianism, and finally to Teddy Kennedy. There must be divine intervention from outside of history, discontinuity, in order to sustain the blessings of God in history, continuity. Meanwhile, we must obey God, continuously. Our job is continuity. God's job is discontinuity. The Christian church today faces a horrendous problem. It has no answers to the question, what is to be done? It has not even thought about an appropriate answer. It has denied the only foundation for constructing a working alternative to humanism, the biblical covenant model. Its theologians and leaders have consistently and publicly denied, one, the continuing validity of Old Testament law in New Covenant society, two, God's predictable historical sanctions, and three, the coming of a millennial era of blessings inaugurated by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel and the application of God's law to human problems. Because Christian scholars have denied these fundamental biblical doctrines, they have been unable to formulate a specifically biblical social theory. They have generally denied that such a formulation is even possible. They have repeated the liberal's refrain, the Bible gives no blueprints for society. This of necessity has led to a fruitless quest to discover non-biblical humanist blueprints that can somehow be made to fit biblical principles carefully undefined. This is baptized humanism, and it has been a way of life for the Church for almost two millennia. No time for silence. With the escalating epistemological, moral, and institutional collapse of Western humanism, and the growing skepticism that threatens to engulf the West, the Church must not remain silent. It must no longer tie its future to a sinking ship. The reigning humanist social order, But to escape the fate of modern humanism, and by fate I mean God's historic sanctions, Christians must categorically reject every form of humanism. They must reject the present social order. This leaves them with the familiar dilemma of all social reformers. You can't beat something with nothing. Yet Bible-believing Christians have self-consciously proclaimed the empty condition of their social bag for well over a century. Worse, they have proudly proclaimed its emptiness. They have insisted that all social theories must be constructed apart from the Bible. There are no knowable biblical models, we are assured, even by those who call themselves Calvinists. As Errol Hulse has asked rhetorically, quote, who among us is adequately equipped to know which political philosophy most accords with biblical principles? Quote. This professed agnosticism has left the Church with nothing except mumbled platitudes to offer a civilization in crisis. Evangelism by platitude is their chosen strategy. The Great Commission is comprehensive, as comprehensive as all the sins that engulf the world. Redemption is comprehensive, also as comprehensive as all the sins that engulf the world. Therefore, biblical theology is equally comprehensive. It must include the principles, laws, by which society can and must be reconstructed. Any theological system that abandons the very idea of such principles of social restoration has understood neither the comprehensive rebellion of modern autonomous man nor the comprehensive redemption offered to him. Where are Christians supposed to search for those permanent authoritative social laws? In Aristotle's politics? In Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica? in Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, in Sir Isaac Newton's Principia, in John Locke's Second Treatise on Government, in Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Social Contract, in Thomas Jefferson's Notes on Virginia, in Karl Marx's Capital, in John Rawls' A Theory of Justice, or in the Bible. When we get direct answers to this question from today's Christian intellectual leaders, depending on the content of their answers, we may begin to move away from the dominant political humanism of our day. Not until then, however. Without considerable pressure, they will not provide these answers. They haven't in the last two centuries, except when identifying Aquinas or Locke as the proper source. There is no independent biblical social theory. Pessimillennialism and the myth of neutrality have done their work very well. A series of major catastrophes, perhaps, will undo it. Biblical Blueprints What is the alternative? Biblical Blueprints We must proclaim the fact that the Bible does provide biblical blueprints for the reconstruction of society. If this were not true, then there could not be an explicitly biblical social theory. There could not be explicitly biblical social action. This is why the concept of biblical blueprints is anathema to all sides. Fundamentalists, neo-evangelicals, Lutherans, traditional Calvinists, and of course, secular humanists. The idea of Biblical blueprints, when coupled with the idea of God's historical sanctions and postmillennialism, threatens the existing alliance between the humanist power religion and the pietist escape religion. This is why the idea is opposed so consistently in recent Christian social commentary. Those Christians who maintain that there are no Biblical blueprints have a major problem. They live in a society that is operated in terms of non-biblical blueprints. There is no neutrality. There will be always blueprints. Blueprints are an inescapable concept. Therefore, Christians must either remain in exile or else they must seek deliverance. To seek deliverance is necessarily to seek dominion. There is no neutrality. To seek dominion is to seek a biblical social alternative. Today, most Christians, like their spiritual forebears in Egypt, Assyria, and Babylonia, much prefer exile. They prefer the leeks and onions of Egypt to the responsibility of comprehensive reconstruction. God requires much more from his people. He required more from them in the wilderness of Sinai, and he requires more today. But like the Israelites in the wilderness, modern Christians, especially the leaders, do not want to hear a message of comprehensive responsibility, let alone preach one. Such a message of responsibility means confronting the Canaanites who control the promised land, the whole earth, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen 18-20. Fed up with today's manna, they are nevertheless unwilling to risk conquering Canaan. After all, as Mr. Lewis so aptly put it, unnecessary persecution could be stirred up. Until the amillennialists and premillennialists offer Bible-based suggestions for Christians to pursue comprehensive redemption in New Testament times, their millennial systems will remain fringe theologies for cultural ghettos. There is a lesson in Western history that is dangerous to ignore. Where there are ghettos, there will eventually be pogroms of one kind or another. Far better to win the whole society to Christ. What about God's sanctions in history? What about the future? With the history of God's redemptive acts in history as our background, one thing seems certain. We can expect a major discontinuity, soon, and I don't mean the rapture. This discontinuity probably will not be exclusively positive. Comprehensive Salvation Salvation is more than just personal, it is institutional, it is even national. We know this has to be the case because of the nature of God's final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his goats from the sheep. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. End quote. Matthew 25, 31-35, New King James Version. Many people have interpreted such verses as Matthew 25, 31-35, as referring exclusively to individual salvation. But the language of the text indicates God's judgment of collectives, not just individual souls. The text indicates institutional salvation, meaning national restoration. To restrict the meaning of the salvation to the human soul is to misread scripture. The passage is clear. The sheep and the goats are symbolic terms for saved and lost nations. Quote, "All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats" On the left. End quote. He will separate nations one from another. People will enter the resurrected kingdom of Christ as members of nations, just as they enter it as members of racial and cultural groups. History does have meaning in eternity. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, 22-27. This has to refer to the post-resurrection kingdom, though it may refer also to the present preliminary manifestation of the new heaven and new earth. There are only saints in the city, but these saints are referred to as members of nations, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. Those who confess Christ at Judgment Day make up one group of nations. Those who refuse to confess Him as Savior make up the other group. Note that there are only two possible confessions. LIP equals Confession of Faith Genesis 11, 1. Christ or Satan, but there are numerous nations. There is one kingdom of God, but numerous national representatives of His kingdom. This points to God's covenantal dealing with mankind as members of nations. The division of tongues languages at the Tower of Babel is a permanent phenomenon in history. Mankind remains divided into recognizable cultural groups even after the resurrection. Most of us accept this implicitly. We expect to meet relatives beyond the grave. We expect them to resemble whoever they had been on earth. When families are reunited, the children of white Caucasians will not be Orientals, and the children of blacks will not be Eskimos. This means that some elements of our historical experience are permanent, in the same way that God's eternal rewards to us for our earthly performance are permanent. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-14 It also means that some aspects of nationhood persist beyond the grave, not the geographical boundaries, but people's shared cultural experiences and presumably also shared memories. Nations slowly change in history, And borders also change, but nations will always be part of history. While some humanists emphasize the need for internationalism, the ideology of the Tower of Babel, while other humanists emphasize nationalism, a development of the last two centuries, we need to recognize that both internationalism and nationalism are biblically legitimate. What we have lost in the modern world is the commitment to localism, psychologically, judicially, and economically. In the medieval period, few people ever journeyed as far as 25 miles from their village. As history has advanced, this restricted mobility has steadily disappeared. So has people's psychological commitment to a hometown. The growing mobility of capital and people within nations has overcome geographical localism. Localism will presumably not be a major factor at the resurrection. In a future millennial era characterized by high per capita income, freedom of movement, freedom of trade, and international peace based on one public lip, a public confession of Trinitarian faith, we can expect to see nationalism go the way of clanism, tribalism, and localism. Localism will not disappear, but its hold on people's minds will decrease. A vision of God's international kingdom in history will replace the competing regional commitments. It will also replace the humanist vision of a one-world kingdom. In the kingdom expansion phase, however, this may not be true. If men become committed to the Four Corners strategy of urban conquest, quadrant by quadrant, they may develop local sympathies and commitments that are stronger than those that exist today, in the Church's passive, pessimillennial phase. A three-way commitment may replace today's unitary, Nationalism. Local, the church's parish, national, the mother tongue, and international, the civilization of God. If all men have one public lip, how will there be any anti-Christian nations to divide on Judgment Day? Why will there be goats? First, because there have been evil nations in the past. Their members will be judged. Second, because some members of the future or covenanted communities of Christian nations will lie about their faith and commitment. There will be a final falling away at the last day. The public confessions of some groups will change. But this does not mean that a long period in between cannot be confessionally and culturally Christian. HE SHALL OVERCOME We know there is only one kingdom of God, and it has many enemies in history. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four 24-26 The final overcoming of all rival authorities by Jesus Christ comes at the last judgment, when he triumphs over his enemies and he delivers his kingdom to God the Father. Christ's kingdom at last absorbs all other kingdoms. But the word absorbs is metaphorical, related to some organic process. The expansion process of Christ's triumphant kingdom in history is neither mechanical nor organic. It is covenantal. God's kingdom triumphs judicially. The kingdom of God is real. It is a factor in human history. It is something that Christ literally delivers to God. Such a transfer of authority is covenantal. Christ subdues the earth, then he transfers this subdued earth to God the Father. This transfer is a kind of dowry which Christ pays to the Father of the Bride, his Church. His inheritance from God becomes the bride price for his Church, a visible payment at the end of history, that in principle was paid for covenantally at Calvary. This payment on the Church's behalf is definitive progressive, and final, at Calvary, in history, and at the final judgment. There is of necessity a disinheritance at that time. Like the inheritance concept, covenantal disinheritance is also definitive, Calvary, progressive, historical, and final. Let both wheat and tares grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. End quote. Matthew thirteen thirty. The tares are finally and eternally disinherited at the final judgment. The nations will be divided at that time. Matthew twenty five thirty one to thirty five. The process of overcoming This overcoming of his enemies is progressive over time. The last enemy to be subdued will be death. So, Christ's enemies are not subdued all at once. This process of overcoming takes place in history. With respect to the nations, there can be little doubt of how the kingdom of God will be manifested, through men's public confession and their covenanting together. Confessing Christ ecclesiastically means confirming the church covenant through baptism and renewing it periodically, preferably weekly, through the Lord's Supper. Confirming Christ in the realm of civil government means a periodic public affirmation of God's covenant law. Exodus 31:10-13. There is no legitimate escape from the covenant and its ethical requirements. As men strive together in their various national covenants to work out their salvation in fear and trembling, Philippians 2:12, they extend Christ's kingdom on earth. As they become covenantally faithful by honoring God's law and word and deed, James 1.19-27, God's visible external blessings cover each formally covenanted society. Deuteronomy 28 teaches that these blessings are clearly national and external. Military, verse 7, weather, verse 12, and financial, verse 12. The rain will not only fall on the converted, after all, The locus of covenant blessings is the nation. This means that nations as covenantal institutions will eventually overcome the enemies of Christ. The positive feedback of covenantal blessings produce wealth, authority, and influence for covenantally faithful institutions, churches, civil governments, and families. These external, visible blessings are designed by God to reinforce men's faith in the reliability of God's covenant promises in history. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Deuteronomy 8, 18. Who gets rich? The socialists adopted a highly successful slogan, The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It is a big lie. The Bible teaches that in the long run, the covenantally faithful get richer, and the covenantally rebellious get poorer. This is denied by the humanists, who deny any visible manifestations of God's covenant in history, and it is also denied by Christian pietists and retreatists, who also want no public national manifestations of God's covenant in history. God's covenantal system of blessings and cursings is designed to produce long-term victory for Christ's people in history. This long-term increase in Christian responsibility to extend God's dominion on earth, is opposed by both humanists and Christian Pietists. The humanists do not want Christians to inherit authority in history, for they want to retain monopoly power over history. Christian Pietists also do not want Christians to inherit authority in history, for with authority necessarily comes responsibility. Men are responsible before God, and this means that we are responsible in terms of permanent standards. This means God's law. The more cultural authority that Christians inherit from God, the harder they must strive politically to enact God's revealed laws in the legal codes of each nation. A Christian society's legal order should reflect the requirements of revealed biblical law. So should the international legal order that is established progressively by Christian nations. The implicit covenantal division between sheep and goats, national entities, must be made increasingly visible as time goes by in heaven as it is in earth matthew five ten b this process of kingdom conquest through covenantal separation in history must include the realm of politics, although politics is not to be regarded as primary, apocalypticism and social change when people believe that whatever they are capable of accomplishing in history is minimal they will tend not to strive to achieve very much, high expected costs coupled with very low expected returns. This outlook is hostile to the idea of historical progress. Societies that have no concept of historical progress tend not to be progressive. But what if men believe that great things are attainable in history? What if they believe that God has made available to them the tools of dominion? Then a minority of them will try to improve their world, and this vision can become the standard for the majority. This is exactly what happened in the West. The question is one of history. If the coming great day is seen as the co-product of continuous work and investment by the faithful and the Spirit's sovereign discontinuous grace into history, then apocalypticism is not basic to their thinking. The process of Spirit-reinforced compound growth is their hope of the future. But when men believe that they can speed up the historical process by violent action, the revolutionary impulse is furthered. Faith in a discontinuous event imposed by man replaces faith in the eventual outcome of compound growth, the exponential curve. If people believe that a great day is coming, but they also believe that the tools of dominion are not available to them in history, then their great temptation is the adoption of apocalypticism. Apocalypticism, like revolution, rests on a lack of faith in the possibility of a systematic progressive dominion of the earth. It comes in two forms, passive and active. The passive apocalyptics peacefully wait on God, Amish-like. They do not attempt to change the society around them. They adopt a ghetto mentality. In contrast, the revolutionary apocalyptics perform acts that they believe will hasten God's revolutionary transformation of the social cosmos. They adopt a communist cell-like mentality. They view themselves as God's vanguard of the future. Both attitudes show a loss of faith in the masses of men. Both show a loss of faith in the familiar social processes of history. God is seen as accomplishing his goals outside of history, apart from the continuities of his Bible-mandated covenantal civil order. The best examples we have in Western history of both of these apocalyptic approaches are found in one movement, 16th century Anabaptism. In 1525, the revolution of the German peasants began, led by John of Leyden. This apocalyptic and activist wing of the spiritualist movement soon became communist, revolutionary, and finally, polygamous. It was openly opposed by Luther and Calvin. Similar movements had sprung up in Europe ever since the 13th century. It took a decade for the combined military forces of Europe to crush them. The revolt ended in the city of Munster, 1534-35. to From that time on, the bulk of the spiritualist Anabaptists have been pacifists and even pacifists. They have also tended to hold property in common. The Amish, Hutterites, and Mennonites are products of this pacifist anabaptist tradition who then are the apocalyptic millennialists today Pessimillennialism. the pessimillennialist denies that there is a co-partnership between god and the church in bringing discontinuous social change personal transformation yes faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of god romans 10:17 The Church preaches the Gospel and the Holy Spirit then moves men to respond. But this is supposedly not God's means of social transformation. To achieve God-honoring social transformation, the pessimillennialist believes, God must unilaterally impose a cosmic discontinuity. The work of Christians in history has very little directly to do with this cosmic discontinuity. It is solely the work of God. The continuity of the Church's work in history has little or nothing to do with the positive transformation of society. Amillennialism The Amillennialist is an apocalyptic, but a pacifist. He believes in the legitimacy, traditional order, but he expects little from it. The best he can hope for is social peace. He sees himself as a member of a spiritual ghetto. He adopts the mentality of the Amish, He may drive a car and have electricity in his home, but he sees no hope in the future. His only relief from history is found in his hope in God's calling history to an end. He may send his children to Christian schools, but not because he regards these schools as boot camps for cultural conquest. These schools are instead regarded as ports in history's endless storms, and also as marriage centers. In the case of denominational colleges, they are useful for keeping local, rural, called-out communities from genetic inbreeding. The local gene pool is broadened when sons return from college with wives from different communities. This goal is especially true of immigrant churches that want to keep their accents alive in their children. Continuity, which is point five of the immigrant churches covenant. The accent is on accents, not theology. Premillennialism. The premillennialist is also an apocalyptic. He sees no hope in the processes of history. The church is a refuge, not a boot camp. He may sing, Onward Christian Soldiers, but he believes, I'm just a poor, wayfaring stranger just traveling through this world of woe. He may send his children to public schools because of his faith in the American civil religion and its faith in zero-tuition education. But he has no real hope in such schools, except perhaps as free sports centers. His hope is in the imminent return of Jesus. Generally, the premillennial mentality is passive. There is nothing we can do to hasten Christ's return, they believe, except possibly missions work and public support for the State of Israel. According to premillennialism, raw political power, not the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, is God's chosen method of social transformation. This power will be exercised by Jesus personally during the millennium. A political bureaucracy, not the Church, will become the means of peace. God refuses to coerce men's saving faith in His Son. His saving grace is not irresistible. His political power will be irresistible, however. As Dave Hunt promises, justice will be meted out swiftly. But until the millennium, there is no way to transform culture. For only Jesus, in person, is allowed by God to compel men to obey. All power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but not if you are Jesus. The Christian's goal, then, is to shun political power during church's history. It is far too corrupting. Until the millennium, Christians must be content with political rule by covenant breakers. Jesus is the solution. Until then, we must make many political trade-offs. God's theocracy then, but humanism's theocracy today, political pluralism. Dispensationalism. The preservation of the State of Israel is basic to the eschatology of the pre-tribulational dispensationalist. Why? So that the Antichrist will be able to wipe out two-thirds of Israel's population after the rapture of the Church and during the Great Tribulation. The Jews of the State of Israel are to serve as God's cannon fodder in the inevitable war of Armageddon. Without the Jews' service as future sitting ducks, pre tribulational dispensationalists would lose all faith in the imminent rapture. The Antichrist would have no ducks in a barrel if there were no barrel. The state of Israel is the Antichrist's barrel. The leaders of dispensationalism do not say in public that this is what their support for Israel is all about, but it is. Based on Zechariah 13, 9, among other passages, Dispensationalists conclude that the two-thirds of the Jews are doomed. This is standard teaching from the pulpits. Dispensational fundamentalism's support for the state of Israel is governed by this unique presupposition. No national Israel, no Armageddon. No Armageddon, no imminent rapture. This is three-stage apocalypticism. The rapture of the church, cosmic discontinuity, the slaughter of the Jews, Historical discontinuity, and the return of Christ to set up his millennial kingdom seven years after the rapture, cosmic discontinuity. But the Church's work in history has nothing to do with any of this. One piece of evidence for my contention is the almost total absence of evangelism by dispensational groups in or to the State of Israel. They do not beam Christian broadcasts in from Cyprus or other areas the way they beam programs to the Islamic world. They do not advertise any such campaigns the way that the Jews for Jesus and similar Messianic Jews organizations do. They are happy to evangelize Jews outside of the state of Israel, but not inside. Why not? One reason is that if the Jews of the state of Israel were converted before the rapture, there would be no Armageddon. The Antichrist could invade Palestine, but there would be no national Jewish state of Israel there. If the bulk of the Jews of the State of Israel were converted to saving faith before the rapture, it would destroy dispensationalism, both pre-tribulational and post-tribulational. Dispensational theology creates a major incentive to write off the State of Israel as a target of mass evangelism. This is a direct consequence of a particular millennial viewpoint. Here is my contention. Any millennial viewpoint that in any way writes off any group or nation at any point in time is a defective eschatology. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2, not at the beginning of the millennium after Armageddon. When the postmillennialist cites Romans 11 and argues that blessings for the church, the dispensationalist dismisses this view of the future as utopian. Why is it utopian? Is it because in our millennial system Not enough Jews get slaughtered before a handful of survivors gets converted? Is it because we refuse to single out the Jews as the targets of persecution in a coming era of tribulation? Is it because we deny that the Great Tribulation is in the future? I think so. Yet Lindsay calls us anti-Semitic. Postmillennialism, is it utopian? The postmillennialist is anti-apocalyptic. He knows that God breaks into history, but God does this by using the familiar processes of church history – evangelism, the sacraments, church discipline, civil justice, and family order. He will send the Holy Spirit to transform billions of individual hearts, and the regenerate then use the familiar tools of dominion to extend God's kingdom in history. This is conquest by conversion. It is utopian only in the sense that if God refuses to send the Holy Spirit in history to achieve this transformation, the God-authorized techniques of evangelism will fail to bring in the era of kingdom blessings, which requires the Holy Spirit's miraculous intervention, covenantal revival. But the postmillennialist always has hope that God will eventually send the Holy Spirit. He does not adopt either a utopian or an apocalyptic mentality. He places his faith in God's gift of the tools of dominion, continuity, and the Holy Spirit's means of transforming rebellious hearts in history, discontinuity. Postmillennialists are labeled as utopians, but who does the labeling? The apocalyptics. They come in two theological forms, Calvinist amillennialists, and Arminian, premillennialists, and a scattering of amillennialists. The Calvinist apocalyptic denies that God will ever send his Holy Spirit to transform men and society. The failure of the gospel in history is predestined by God, he insists, privately. The Arminian apocalyptic argues that even if God planned to transform men and society in this way, doubtful, the Holy Spirit's efforts would inevitably be thwarted by the free wills of the vast majority of covenant breakers. This is the Arminians' doctrine of predestination by Satan. Inevitability equals predestination. Satan has predestined the failure of God's church in the church age. God, however, cannot predestine the success of his church. This is why he has to intervene by pulling the church to heaven and starting over. The church is rotten wood. It has to be removed from history before anything culturally positive can be accomplished. Kingdom and Church Here is the basis of Christ's progressive overcoming of his enemies in history, the steady expansion of the authority of his covenant people on earth and in history. This is the principle of leaven. God's holy leaven steadily replaces Satan's unholy leaven in history. Another parable he spake unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Matthew 13.33 the imagery of leaven is the imagery of continuity. It is a denial of dispensationalism's future cosmic discontinuity of the rapture. We now come to Paul's restatement of God's footstool theology. God triumphs in history through the expansion of Christ's international kingdom. Now when all things are, subject, are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15.28 This is not pantheism. It is covenant dominion. God is not infused into his creation. His kingdom in heaven progressively becomes covenantally identified with Christ's kingdom on earth. Our final prayer is answered at the end of history. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 but it is also answered progressively in history. This is the society of man's long-term earthly future, no matter what difficulties Christians may experience between now and then. God's kingdom comes. His will is done. For proclaiming such a view of history, the Reconstructionists have come under heavy fire from pietists. An English pastor announced to his magazine's readers, quote, Reconstructionist writers will all scorn the attitude of traditional evangelicals who see the Church as something so completely distinct and separate from the world that they seek no authority over the affairs of the world." Quote. He is correct on this point, though on few others in his essay. This is exactly what we scorn, and for explicitly theological reasons. That the Church is distinct from the world institutionally is not a major insight. It alone lawfully administers the holy sacraments. But what has this got to do with the other half of his assertion, namely, that they, Christians, therefore needn't seek no authority over the affairs of this world? It is because the Church is distinct from this world that God has called Christians, as his disciples, to baptize nations, bringing whole societies under God's authority. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20. If the Church had its origins in this world, we could not lawfully claim to represent God legally in history. We would be of this world, and therefore incapable of bringing a heaven-originated process of healing and restoration to this world. It is the very distinctness of the Church and its God-assigned task of discipling the nations that authorizes Christians progressively to seek authority over the affairs of this world. A False Definition of God's Kingdom we do not argue, as this critic argues to defend his own position of cultural isolation, that the kingdom of God is the church, small as it may sometimes appear, not the world. This definition of the kingdom of God is the Roman Catholic definition of the kingdom, and it has led to the past, in the past, to ecclesiocracy. It places everything under the institutional church. The church, in principle, absorbs everything. This same definition can also lead to the ghetto mentality and cultural isolation. It places nothing under Christianity, because the kingdom is narrowly defined as merely the institutional church. Because the institutional church is not authorized to control the state, correct, and because the kingdom is said to be identical to the church, incorrect, the kingdom of God is then redefined as having nothing to do with anything that is not strictly ecclesiastical. This is our critics' view of the kingdom. Let me ask three rhetorical questions. Is the family under God's lawful authority? Is the family part of the kingdom of God? Is the family to be governed by biblical law? The family is not the institutional church. It is a separate institution. Would our critic like to go before his readers and announce that the Christian family has nothing to do with the kingdom of God? I do not think this is what he is ready to do. I would not expect any pastor to do this. If he hesitates to remove the Christian family from kingdom status because it is not identical to the church, then he is a theological dead duck if he is a pietist. He now has moved boundaries of the kingdom of God beyond the confines of the institutional church, and so his argument dies. What the Bible teaches is the civilization of God, which is in historical warfare with the civilization of Satan. It is broader than the institutional church, as surely as Satan's kingdom is broader than this or that cult or temple. God calls every Christian into service. Each person has some talent that can be used to build the kingdom. Each person must build one kingdom or the other. There is no neutrality. Christians are called to build God's institutional church, but we are also called to build his families. What enrages our critics, pietists and Christians alike, is that Christian reconstructionists say that Christians are also called to build his civil government. For them, this is the ultimate heresy. Why? Because it involves more responsibility than they choose to bear. The Pietist's goal in life is to reduce the claims of Christ on him, his vision in his pocketbook. Yet there is no escape in the mythical realm of neutrality. As C.S. Lewis has one of his most self-conscious antiheroes say, in his 1946 novel about the war between the New Age, New World Order, and Christianity. If you try to be neutral, you become simply a pawn. It is not our task as Christians to serve as pawns in this game. Yet this is what modern Pietism insists that we must be, on principle. Anything else is the heresy of power. Pietists would rather see us all sacrificed, the strategic purpose of pawns. So would the humanists. The Alliance continues. If pietists regarded their family responsibilities with the same attitude of contempt that they regard their civic responsibilities to exercise dominion under God's sovereign authority in terms of God's law, why, we would see divorce and adultery go unpunished in God's church. Pastors caught in adultery would then be regarded as no more culpable than someone caught embezzling church funds, maybe even less culpable. Oops, sorry, scratch that. This is exactly what we see today, and have seen for a century. The adulterers in the pulpit have an implicit alliance of silence with the adulterers in political office, and Reconstructionists threaten this alliance. That Jimmy Swigert was exposing the evils of Dominion theology every weekend on national television at the same time that he was visiting a prostitute was at least theologically consistent. We're under grace, not law. By God's grace, and also by means of a private investigator who had been hired by another formerly adulterous pastor, whose escapades Reverend Swaggart had exposed publicly, the now expelled Mr. Swaggart can no longer attack Dominion Theology, or anything else, on national television. God stopped using Swaggart as a middleman to subsidize sin. Conclusion It is always hard to sell personal responsibility. This has been a continuing problem facing the Christian Reconstructionists. Christians will do almost anything to escape added responsibilities, even if this means 1. abandoning hope in a worldwide revival, 2. adopting the myth of neutrality, 3. abandoning the world in history to the devil, but all in the name of biblical prophecy and narrowly defined evangelism. They have rejected the nation discipling aspect of the Great Commission but in the name of the Great Commission. Society can never be Christian, we are told, because it never has been. Forget about the medieval world, forget about the Holland in the 16th century, we are apparently not talking about Western civilization here. Quote, Where Christians have previously attempted to construct even a very limited Christian society, their efforts have been sadly frustrated. Quote. It is the same old humanist-pietist story. The progress of the West is seen as having nothing to do with the spread of the Gospel and men's post-conversion construction of Christian social institutions. This is the textbook history of the West as written by Voltaire and Diderot. It is the modern textbook version of the past, a past devoid of Christianity and God's covenantal sanctions, especially his sanctions. And it is presented to Christian laymen by pastors with doctorates, earned and honorary in theology. This is another example of the continuing alliance between the power religion and the escape religion. The power religion always establishes the standards in this alliance. There is no neutrality. The power religionists understand this. The escape religionists never do. They become outraged when another Christian points out their non-neutrality to them. It is the great offense of the Christian Reconstructionists to remind Christians of just how unneutral humanism is. How comprehensive Christ's salvation is, and how much God expects from us. When it comes to the task of discipling the nations, the pietist responds, Not on our agenda. In the name of God, sir, if you are a Christian, it's sure as heaven is.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.